The Bob Murphy Show, episode 100. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. In this episode, I'm going to summarize some of the thought from various classical liberal thinkers on the nature of political obedience. That why, why is it that so many people obey a relatively small group of their, quote, leaders? And uh, what ramifications does that have for political action for those who don't like the current system? A lot of the stuff I'm going to say here, I have said in scattered remarks and speeches I've given over the years, but I thought it'd be good to just condense it all and have it in one spot. So first, let me start by reminding listeners or I'm not reminding you if it's the first time you've heard it, that Ludwig von Mises, citing David Hume in turn, said several times in his works that in the long run, the government rests on public opinion. And even, and he meant that not just in a democratic society, but even the most ruthless dictatorships, he said in the long run, the, uh, the regime rests on public opinion, if only through tacit consent. And, you know, in one sense, you could say he meant that, like, like that it's almost a tautology that, oh, if, the, you know, the people don't rise up and openly revolt against the regime, then that means they prefer the regime to open revolt. And so, therefore, the people must, in some sense, approve of it. And, yeah, you could do it in a sort of meaningless, not meaningless, but in a tautologist sense that ends up meaning less than what it first sounds like. But I think Mises meant it in the more substantive sense, all right? And he would say things like, you, you might think it has to do with, oh, the, the reason the dictator's in charge is because he has the secret police and the military on his side. And you know what hope do the common people have against such power? But Mises would point out, well, wait a minute, if there's the tyrant on one side and all the people with the guns are pointing at, broader population who are on the other side, what is it that keeps the men with guns pointing their guns at the public? Why don't they turn around and point their guns at the dictator? Okay, so Mises was saying, ultimately, it's ideology and opinion that guides all of that. Now, of course, you can come up with specific examples where it might seem strained or something, but that's the spirit of, of what Mises was talking about. I think that's an essential insight. It really, you know, if you just think about it, it's not, except in cases like my favorite example of this is Superman 2, where the three Kryptonians, you know, General Zod and what is it, Ursula and Nod, I think are the other two, you know, they escape from the Phantom Zone, they come to Earth and they just take over. And so there too, or I should say there's the, the example where, no, there the power rests in a sense just because they're so physically strong. But in reality, even... If you go back in time to those types of warrior societies where the, the leader is the strongest fighter, 
it doesn't matter how strong the guy is. When he goes to sleep at night, anybody can go in and kill him, right? So even in that kind of a situation, ultimately the reason someone stays in power is because he has somehow taken over a system where the people underneath him in terms of the chain of command are adhering to this mental image of the framework into which they've been plugged in or into which they've been plugged, which just sounds funny. <laughs> the framework that they're plugged into, I'll end with the preposition, how's that? So it doesn't sound so funny. Okay, so again, just think through the logic of that. Now, when I was teaching game theory at Hillsdale, we went through an interesting exercise where I was trying to get the students to model a situation where there could be the dictator and, and everybody hates him, right? Everybody would prefer that he would be dead. But with expectations and strategies, things could have been molded such that, oh, the reason nobody lifts a hand to harm the dictator is because if any of the other guards see that person doing that, they would shoot the guard. And you'd say, well, why would they do that if, if by stipulation everybody hates the dictator? Well, because if they believe that, oh, if someone's raising his hand to shoot the dictator and I'm right next to him and I don't tackle the guy or do whatever I can to stop him and save the dictator, then the people behind me will shoot me too. And why would they do that? Oh, because they know if they don't punish the person who fails to punish the leader of the coup, then somebody else will punish them. Da, 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 right? And they just keep going on for infinity. All right. So that's, you, you can imagine situations like that. All right. So I don't deny that things get more nuanced when you're talking about a hated dictator versus a system where the, the public kind of thinks, oh, no, it's, yeah, we have a democracy and we vote every four years and you don't like it, you can leave. And yeah, it's not perfect, but this is a system we got. Obviously, that's a different kind of tacit consent compared to one where everybody knows, oh, yeah, the dictator is a maniacal murderer. And the reason we don't rise up is just out of fear because somebody else will punish us, even though that person would agree. If we could get away with it, wouldn't it be great if something happened to this guy? All right, so I do acknowledge all that stuff, but still... I think it's a very useful starting point to begin with Mises' insight that in the long run, all governments rest on popular opinion. Actually, I think the way he phrased it was he said all governments are popular in the sense that they rest on public opinion. And if they became, if the regime becomes unpopular, it falls. To give a little empirical backing to that in case it strikes you as implausible, if you think that really what props up a regime is not so much, especially if it's behaving somewhat tyrannically, let's say. If you think that, oh, really, the reason they stay in power is just because they have all the guns and not because there's any sort of ideology involved, well, then you should think, you would expect to see that in relatively open societies where the governments aren't so tyrannical and doing things like killing dissidents and whatnot, you would expect there to be a lot of control of the media and education in that sort of society, right? Because, oh, they can't just resort to violence against their opponents. The to stay in power, the regime has to control the flow of information, right? Whereas in a dictatorship where everyone just knows if you criticize the leader, you disappear at night because the secret police show up at your door and your neighbor is just like, ooh, I guess he's not around anymore. And they get the hint. 
in that kind of a society, if again, if really what was driving these things was just the power of the gun or the tank, whatever, then you would expect in those societies where the dictator has the authority to just kill his opponents, that there'd be open internet access and that the schools could teach things that were contrary to the regime's desires because, you know, what do, you, what do I care what ideas fill the heads of the people, right? Because I know if they step out of line, they're dead. And that's all that matters, right? I have more guns. And of course, you can see, no, that things are the exact opposite of that. It's precisely in those regimes where the leader has the ability to just have you killed if you step out of line. It's also in those regimes where the leader exercises the tightest control over education and the media and internet access and so on. Now, I grant you, in some sense, you could just say, well, yeah, because the kind of leader who can get away with just shooting you also can get away with controlling the media, so why not? But I think it also reflects Mises' point that if the leader is going to be that diabolical, the only way he can maintain his power when ruling like such an autocrat is if he maintains the illusion among the people that he's a good leader and that he's doing all of these sordid activities for their benefit. So let me tell a quick story. I heard this interview with a guy who had been, I forget the name of the, it was like, he was in the propaganda unit for the North Korean government. You know, this was, I heard the interview about 10 years ago, maybe a little less. So the guy probably has left 20 years ago, something like that. So um, they're interviewing him and they said, oh, what was it that caused you to leave? And he was explaining how there were plenty of people in North Korea who wanted to flee, but they were afraid because they knew even if they made it out, that once it was discovered, they had left, that you know the, the regime might do something to their family or their friends. And so that's partly what kept a lot of people from leaving is they feared repercussions for the, those who stayed behind. But he said what had pushed him over the edge, and I think he said he just didn't, you know, really have much family or anything, and that's why he didn't feel anything like that holding him back. But the thing that pushed him over the edge, he said, was they were, um, they had a photograph of a labor protest from South Korea. You know, like there was a union strike or something like that and people demanding higher wages, whatever. And so their task was to take that photo and use it for propaganda purposes to, you know, show the North Koreans hey, look at how good we have it here. Look how unhappy the workers are under the capitalist South Korean system, whereas up here, it's a worker's paradise, you know, that kind of thing. So again, this guy, his job with the North Korean regime was to put out propaganda. And so he had access to foreign photos, whereas the average person didn't. It would first, you know, go through the hands of the censors and whatnot. And so the only thing they were going to see was after it had been doctored up by the propaganda department. And so what this guy said, though, was that looking at the photo, he was amazed. And the sorts of things he noticed in it just show the difference in the two systems and how insulated the North Korean people had been from the outside world. And so he said one thing that jumped out at him was the fact that the people in South Korea were allowed to protest. So, yeah, there weren't labor protests in North Korea because you'd be shot or you know, sent to prison if you dare to do something like that. So that's why they didn't have protests up there, not because conditions were so great. Another thing he noticed is he could see in the background from the, you know, the labor strike or whatever it was, that there were normal people driving cars on the busy street. And that was unheard of in North Korea, at least at the time. Again, I remember what year this was, that he said only party officials 
would have an automobile at that point. So just to see regular people. And the other thing that he noticed was that, well, you know, one of the workers who was close enough to the camera so that you could see it, he had a ballpoint pen sticking out of his shirt pocket while he's, you know, holding up a protest sign or something. And again, that would have been an unheard of in North Korea. Ballpoint pens were luxury items that only the, you know, the connected would have access to. Regular people couldn't have a ballpoint pen. And so little things like that. So I guess the point being that the higher ups who had more access to this kind of information in the outside world, outside media, passed along this photograph saying, hey, look at this. You know, here's the, a labor protest showing how unhappy the workers are in South Korea. Go do something with this. Not realizing that by just passing along that photo, they were subverting their own regime. That's how much, you know, if you went high up enough, those people didn't realize the bubble they had created and how that actually was hurting their cause to pass along that photo because it showed, among other things, do you know people south of the border have ballpoint pens? Right? So it's kind of hard for us to even imagine the level of poverty in North Korea at the time, such that a ballpoint pen would have been considered a luxury. But that's what this guy was saying. I used like on NPR or something. So when he saw that, that's what pushed him over the edge and he started you know, planning his escape. Okay, but point being, as awful as the North Korean regime is, and it certainly is, you can see that one of the crucial elements of that, one of the things keeping that regime intact was a large wall of ignorance around the people they couldn't be allowed to learn just how wealthy the rest of the world is because then they would realize that something was horribly wrong with their system and it would be hard for their ruler to continue to tell them that he was looking out for them and that, yes, some of these harsh measures that you occasionally see are necessary to keep order and maintain the vibrancy and vitality of our society. Now, part of what is driving all that is that, and this works both for, you know, Mises' sense and also if you want to get more specific and nuanced in terms of like a game theoretic treatment to see, you know, how could it be that a lot of people might secretly wish that something happens to the dictator and yet they don't lift a finger because they know they'll be punished. And in fact, they themselves might punish someone that they caught in a plot to take out the ruler, even if in a vague sense, they kind of wish the ruler would die of a heart attack or something. One way to, to see that is you got to keep, if you're the ruler in such a society, you want to keep everybody isolated. Hey, everybody. I wanted to make you aware that on April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating again at the Soho Forum. This particular debate is also co-hosted by the Libertarian Christian Institute. And the resolution is going to be to promote a Christian vision of human flourishing Christians should support free market capitalism. So I'm going to be in the affirmative and the negative is Tony Campolo. For more details and how you can register, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash debate. And if you decide to go ahead and buy the tickets, use the promo code Bob, B-O-B, all lowercase, in order to get a discount. Let me just take a, a brief digression here. I saw this interesting presentation when I was a grad student at NYU, the Austrian Colloquium. And it was actually, it was about the, the, the modeling of knowledge in game theory, right? Because when you're doing like a, especially a multi-stage game or, or multi-round game where a player goes and another player goes and da, 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 like that, that what the players 
you know, you, you model in some of those situations, like what the knowledge set is of the player. Like what have they seen up to that point and so on. And then the strategies have to be based on, conditioned on what you've observed up till now. Da, 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 what do you do? You know, that kind of stuff. And so what this guy was, he, he was like explaining the theory that had been developed and then was trying to come up with real world examples to illustrate some of the findings. So it was a, it was a pretty good presentation. The fact that I still vaguely remember what the guy said years later should show how much it struck me. And so he was saying things, for example, like um, if you look at what kind of products or services are advertised during the Super Bowl, a lot of them are what are called network goods. So like, you know, phone plans. I'm trying to think of other examples. But that's, you know, but that's, that's an obvious one that I remember. And so he's saying, what, what is it about phone plans, you know, things like that, uh, specific phone networks? It's not just that it, you have to think it's a better thing, but you want to join something that other people have joined. And so for that kind of a service where it's not useful to you unless millions of other Americans are also using it or it's more useful to you the more other Americans use it, or you know, maybe like eBay or something too. I mean, I'm trying to think of examples of things that this guy would claim they'd be more likely to be advertised on the Super Bowl rather than something else. And so he, he was saying, because when you watch an ad on the Super Bowl, it's not merely that millions of people are seeing that ad. It's that millions of people are seeing it and they know that millions of people are seeing it and they know that millions of people know that millions of people are seeing it. Did it like that for, you know, as many layers down as you want to take the analysis. All right, it's, it's what's called common knowledge. It becomes common knowledge that everyone has seen this ad or that lots of people have seen this ad. And so that can affect what you do. So that, and then he also made an application to dictatorships and graffiti. And he said that in an open society, if, you know, and I think this presentation, I would have seen it uh, in the first administration of, the, of George W. Bush. So during that time, you know, there are plenty of people around NYU in particular that were, you know, spray painting or putting in chalk on the sidewalk. Bush is a war criminal or Cheney war criminal, whatever, stuff like that. Try them for war crimes because of, you know, the invasion of Iraq and, um, or the, or the lead up to it, whatever. So in contrast, he was saying in North Korea or some other regime where the ruler has much tighter control, if somebody puts up an anti-regime message on a, on an overpass or something, or, you know, some building in a big city that a lot of people can see the message that gets immediately cleaned up. Whereas in the United States, you know, that Bush is a war criminal might just stay up there. It's not like if the police see that, oh my gosh, they quickly call the Department of Public Sanitation or something and they send somebody to clean it up right away. And he's saying, well, you know, why is that? And he's saying, because in a regime that rests on fear and coercion, they have to tightly control information in general, but also they have to make it so people who don't like the regime feel isolated. And so the problem from the regime's point of view, when you see uh, somebody has had the courage to go spray paint something subversive in the middle of the night, and then you see that bright and early the next day, when other people see that, they realize, okay, number one, there's at least one person who hates the regime so much he had the courage to risk his life to put that message up there. But they don't just conclude, oh, so there's me and at least one other guy. Interesting. No, they know that, oh, lots of people are seeing that. 
And we all know that we're all seeing that, right? That's part of the subversive nature of such a message. And that's why if your goal is to strike a blow at the credibility of the regime, it would be better to go spray paint something, you know, on an overpass or on a tall building or whatever, where you know, let's say a thousand people are going to see it rather than just making up a thousand little leaflets and putting the subversive message in the thing and then handing it out to a thousand people. Because if you just find a little a leaflet on the ground that you know has a subversive message on it, you don't know how many other people have seen it. Whereas again, if he puts it up in a central place, not only do you see it, but you know lots of other people are seeing it too. And that makes a difference if what the, the uh, you know, would-be revolutionary is trying to do is to change, to, to you know, break out of the equilibrium where it might be that lots of people wish the regime would fall, but they're all afraid to step forward because they know if just a few people step forward, they're going to get snuffed out. All right, so again, that's the analysis the guy used, and you can see how that ties in with the whole game-theoretic handling of knowledge, that it's not enough for a 1,000 people to receive the subversive message. It's better if a 1,000 people receive the subversive message and know that a 1,000 people receive the subversive message and know that the others know like that. Okay. Um, likewise... I gave a talk once at the Mises Institute or for the Mises Institute. We weren't, we weren't in Auburn when it was near election time. And I pointed out how just doing something subversive on Twitter was going to have a lot more impact than casting a vote. Right. So I was giving a, a speech on the limits of voting and, you know, I wasn't telling you not to vote, but I was explaining that it's goofy to go vote for quote strategic reasons. Like, in other words, if you're saying, oh, yeah, this person I'm voting for, I really don't like all that much in the grand scheme, but I like this person a lot more than the, than the opponent. And so that's what I'm putting. And I was just explaining that that kind of argument seems odd to me because in most cases, your particular vote is not going to actually make the difference between your candidate winning versus the opponent who scares you even more. And so it's like you're doing something that, you know, you got, in other words, it might make sense to hold your nose and vote for the lesser of two evils if you actually had the power to make the lesser of two evils take office, but you don't have that power. So it's like you're casting largely a symbolic vote for something, for a symbol you don't even endorse, which is just kind of weird to me. All right. Anyway, I'm sure a lot of you, that's the one thing you'll take away from this podcast episode and either think I'm right or want to argue with me in the comments, and that's fine. But that was the, the context of the talk I was giving for the Mises Institute. And then I was, you know, Part of what I was saying then is, look, there's so much more you can do besides just go cast a vote every two or four years, for example. And then I put up on the screen, because remember this was, well, you didn't know this, but it, it was the election between Trump and Hillary Clinton. So we were, it was getting close to actual election day. And I put up something, and it was Hillary Clinton had tweeted something out, and I don't remember what it was, something like... I'm, I'm making this up. I don't remember, folks, what it was, but it was something along the lines of, you know, can can someone who's, you know, actively fighting accusations of assault um, run for president? Or it was something like that, like where she was trying to show that Trump wasn't even fit to be running. And then one of the, you know, the top responder comments said, can someone who's actively being investigated by the FBI run for office? 
It was something like that. I don't remember the exact words, but it was that kind of a snarky thing. And that person had that tweet, you know, had thousands and thousands of hearts. Right. And so I was, I was pointing out how this kind of stuff works. And I was saying, when you see something like that, it's not just that thousands of people agreed with that guy's, you know, heckling of Hillary Clinton and it would have given them courage if they were Trump fans. But it's also that by seeing that feature on Twitter and seeing how many hearts it got, they knew, oh, wow, there's thousands of people who think like me too. All right. So I was just explaining the dynamics of that. You know, once somebody points it out, it's obvious. It's not like this is rocket science here, but I'm just explaining that does matter for things like this, that when someone challenges authority and then you can see that there's a lot of support for it, that gives a shot in the arm to all the other people who might be thinking the same thing because they realize, oh, wait a minute, there's more of us than I realized. And it's not just that they see that, but they know, oh, and now we all are being energized like I am by seeing that. All right, so that's another example of the kind of thing I mean here. So the point with all that stuff, though, is to say, back to the original point I was making with Mises and Hume, is that there's a reason dictatorial regimes have such a tight control on the school system and the media access to the internet and blah, blah, blah. Why they would scrub graffiti right away is because they know that their hold on power is very tenuous. Even though they have the police and the military and whatever, it's precisely those violent regimes that throw their opponents in prison or have them killed that often are overthrown in a military coup or, you know, the people rise up and execute the leader. All right, so they have to, you know, maintaining their control is a, is a constant worry and something where they have to also control what it is that people think and the ideological system they use to get people to think, oh, it's got to be like this so that it doesn't occur to them to try to change who the ruler is or to try to change the system. Now, one of the most famous uh, examples of this line of thought, the, the classic example, is from Etienne de la Boite. I don't know if I'm in the same zip code as the right pronunciation of that. So he was a thinker born in 1530, and his famous essay was called The Politics of Obedience, a Discourse on Voluntary Servitude, or the Discourse of Voluntary Servitude. And so here I'm just going to be reading, uh, I'll put links in the show notes page. So again, folks, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 100. And the version I'll, I'll link to is put out by the Mises Institute. And it's got a great introduction by Murray Rothbard. You know, just giving some biographical details of Lebuete, but also, um, you know, Rothbard has some key quotes from it. So the stuff I'm going to read right now are just the excerpts that Rothbard himself grabbed in the introduction to this thing, just to show you, you know, the, the chain of argument to summarize where the guy was going with it. So here I'm reading De La Boite. I should like merely to understand how it happens that so many men, so many villages, so many cities, so many nations sometimes suffer under a single tyrant who has no other power than the power they give him, who is able to harm them only to the extent to which they have the willingness to bear with him, who could do them absolutely no injury unless they preferred to put up with him rather than contradict him. Surely a striking situation. Yet it is so common that one must grieve the more and wonder the less at the spectacle of a million men serving in wretchedness 
their necks under the yoke, not constrained by a greater multitude than they. Right? So this is fascinating when you think about it. If you were like aliens looking at dictatorship, it would be odd. There would be this one guy, you know, sitting in his palace or whatever, just issuing orders and the rest of the country trembling in fear. And, you know, why, you know, why is somebody thousands of miles away from where Joseph Stalin lives? Why is he worried if all of a sudden Stalin accuses him of treachery? Is it because Stalin is going to be like General Zod and just fly over and melt the guy with heat vision because he's actually from the planet Krypton? And he's, no, of course not. They weren't afraid of Stalin because Stalin himself was going to show up and stab him. No, it's because Stalin was going to give some orders and those were going to get passed down and other people were going to show up at the guy's place and do something awful to him. And if you asked him, why are they, you doing this? Again, it'd be a combination of things. I mean, the immediate answer for some people would be, well, because if I don't follow these orders, that's treason. And then I'll be tortured and killed or, you know, thrown in the gulag, whatever. But for other people, it might be, oh, because this guy's a traitor. You know, I'm a true believer in communism. And, you know, Stalin's our, our leader. All right. But either way, the point being, the only reason that horrible system was maintained was because of the at least thousands of people in the infrastructure of the Soviet regime under Stalin. It's not that Stalin himself had superhuman strength and was immune to gunfire. It was that somehow he had become to, you know, he was partly molded and assumed the power of, you know, this machinery that had been set in motion with Lenin and whatnot, where other people implemented the orders and carried this stuff out. And so, again, from a certain perspective, just to have it click, the reason Joseph Stalin was able to have such terror over the peoples of the Soviet Union when he was in charge was largely because the peoples of the Soviet Union or a subset of them carried out his orders and the others sat there and took it and didn't, you know, resist too much. Did other, did other things to support the system like, you know, pay their taxes or whatever, volunteer for military duty. All right, so that's the essence of what Dwilabati is getting at here. Then he goes on to say, shall we call subjection to such a leader cowardice? If a hundred, if a thousand endure the caprice of a single man, should we not rather say that they lack not the courage, but the desire to rise against him and that such an attitude indicates indifference rather than cowardice? When not a hundred, not a thousand men, but a hundred provinces, a thousand cities, a million men refuse to assail a single man from whom the kindest treatment received is the infliction of serfdom and slavery, what shall we call that? Is it cowardice? When a thousand, a million men, a thousand cities fail to protect themselves against the domination of one man, this cannot be called cowardly, for cowardice does not sink to such a depth. What monstrous vice then is this, which does not even deserve to be called cowardice, a vice for which no term can be found vile enough? Okay, and so there, you know, Rothbard's quoting from there, and Rothbard elaborates on where he's going with that stuff. So Labuete is, you know, first just trying to isolate, like, how can this be? This is weird. You know, and then he goes through and explains how it is. And in the title should give it away, the discourse of voluntary servitude. So he's saying there's a sense in which even under a tyrannical regime, the people in a certain sense are consenting to it. Okay. And now 
once you realize that that's how he's diagnosing the problem, well then, what's the prescription? What's the solution? And let's go back to Labuete. Resolve to serve no more and you are at once freed. I do not ask that you place hands upon the tyrant to topple him over, but simply that you support him no longer. Then you will behold him like a great colossus whose pedestal has been pulled away, fall of his own weight and break in pieces. All right, so that all fits together. To the extent that you agree with you know, Mises and Hume and Lavoite writing so long ago, that there's a sense in which the dictator is propped up not because of guns or you know, cages and the hangman, but because of voluntary obedience to his rules, to his commands, right? It's not the dictator going around shooting people or putting them into a cage that he built or getting a noose that he fastened and putting it around your neck. It's other people doing all that stuff because he ordered it so. So how do you stop that system? You don't need to go kill the dictator. Everyone just needs to stop listening to him. And then he has no power. It would just be some angry guy yelling in the corner. Okay, so another way perhaps of seeing this is when you know, people talk about Nazi Germany. The, the crazy thing about that is not that, oh, one guy tried to launch another world or did launch another world war and you know, set up concentration camps and all the horrible things that we think of when we think about Adolf Hitler. That's not the crazy thing. The crazy thing is why did a nation that produced such great art and scientific achievements is Germany. Why did that nation go along with that and listen to the guy? Why did they follow his orders when he gave such monstrous orders? That's really the, the issue, right? So you're, it would be hopeless. In other words, if you're saying, oh, the way we're going to prevent another Hitler is just uh, let's try to make sure that, that we don't have anybody who's power hungry and evil. Let's just try to make sure or that, you know, is, doesn't like certain ethnicities. Let's just stamp all that stuff out and then we won't have to worry about another Hitler taking power. No, that's not really very going to be very effective. Wouldn't it instead be much smarter to say, let's not have this machinery of the state where we're all, you know, once someone achieves the pinnacle of this in this hierarchy, we're going to carry out his or her orders, even if they are monstrous. Because, oh, that's what the machinery allows for. Let's just make sure the person who assumes it is nice. Well, no, that, that seems kind of reckless. Let's not have such machinery in the first place. And so, you know, this is uh, going back to, you know, my personal vision of, or why is it that I'm not real big on political action and these sorts of things, except insofar as they're educational vehicles. So to be clear, this, this kind of sums up my view. I supported Ron Paul's candidacy when he ran the last two times. You know, I would share videos and, you know, people were arguing about him online. I would jump in, I would write articles, stuff, but I didn't actually vote for him because I don't vote. Right. I'm not, but to be clear, I'm not saying, and if you're a libertarian, understand the NIP, you would do this. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying me personally, that's how I handle that kind of stuff. All right. So because I thought Ron Paul's candidacy was useful to get the word out and to educate people because politics is fun and interesting in cer at certain times. And so I understood, yeah, you want to talk about Austrian economics or ending the Fed? It's maybe this is a conversation starter for some people. And so that's great. 
but I didn't actually vote for him because for one thing, I didn't, <laughs> there was no doubt in my mind that they were not going to let him get sworn in as president. I'll just leave it at that. Like something would have happened if it came down to it. All right. So uh, when it comes to, well, gee, Bob, you know, if you don't do that, well, how are we going to uh, f- change the system if we don't vote in the right people to reverse these? You know, you, you can do that if you want. And sure, all this stuff is going to go hand in hand. But things like uh, drug laws, for example. I mean, right now, there's dispensaries and things where people just openly go in and buy marijuana. But, oh, they won't, you can't use your, your uh, credit cards there because the technically at the federal level, it's still in violation of the DEA, blah, blah, blah. And so the banks don't want to touch it. The fact that the states are okay with it, you know, and whether they're going to send in a SWAT team, well, they might, but that's the kind of thing that's happening right now. Or even if it were back in the days when a lot of places it was still illegal, even at the local level, if you were in an area like a college town or something where just, you know, nobody cared if you were smoking weed in your dorm room or something, it was just as long as nobody reported it, wouldn't care. They wouldn't, you know, nothing would happen to you. You could, you know, people could smell it and say, eh, I don't care, right? So if people aren't calling the police to report you, it's hard for them to enforce so-called laws against victimless crimes. Or maybe now the hot button issue is the stuff with the gun laws and various sheriffs saying, you know, we're not going to enforce something that we think is unconstitutional, right? So you, you can see how that plays out. And so that's why, to me, I don't at all like long for the day, you know, I know some people are like, oh, yeah, an, an uprising and we'll have the second American. And no, to me, it would be much preferable because it would be peaceful and nobody would get hurt. But also to me, it would be hilarious if, you know, somebody's in the White House and then the public just, boom, had a realization that, yeah, I, I don't support coercive political rule anymore. And just all the people around the president just resigned and, and the president's jumping up and down and, okay, well then, you're out, you're out. I'm going to appoint a new secretary of state and went out and, okay, who are the candidates? Who wants to be? And thinking everyone's going to line up these, you know, power-hungry sycophants who just want to get the scraps that he throws from the table and nobody wants to apply. Like if just in that society now, that would be very shameful. Like, oh, who would want to do that? And just, there's, there's no, nobody who's willing to apply. And it's just this guy running around, jumping around, I'm the president. I order you to, and everyone's just like, you know, trying to not laugh in his face. Yeah, yeah, I know that that must be difficult. You know, that must be frustrating for you. You have all this power and can't do anything with it, huh? And then they go and engage in voluntary commerce. Like to me, that would be amazing. That would be the best way to handle it. Now, I grant you, that's not going to happen next Thursday. And before we got to a world like that, along the way, people would vote in more libertarian candidates and or there'd be secession or a movement towards more federalism. Obviously, I get how these things are all going to be moving together. But my point is, it's not correct when people say, oh, no, I mean, you got to vote the right people in. I mean, ultimately, it's the ballot box. No, it doesn't. There's a lot more going on when the president, I mean, think of it this way. Right now, the government, the federal government, the people in charge of it, do all sorts of things that are clearly unconstitutional. And how do we get away with it? Well, it's just because, you know, some people don't object. And you can say, oh, no, because the Supreme Court, oh, well, okay, well, how come the Supreme Court 
how come they can write opinions that are clearly wrong on some of those key cases that say things are constitutional, which any normal person reading and anybody from 50 years earlier would have said, no, that's not constitutional. What are you talking about? It's because of opinion. If the president tomorrow said he gets to uh, spend the first night with every newly married woman, like that scene from Braveheart, the public wouldn't go for that. It wouldn't matter if they passed a law or something. They, you know, they would just, you can't do that. And he wouldn't try to do that. Whereas, can they go and have, send a drone and take out an Iranian general? Apparently they can. Now, I think they might have been surprised a little bit by the blowback on that. And so now they're going to tread more lightly. But you know, ultimately, what can the president do? It's what is he going to get away with in terms of public opinion? Now, again, it's, it's more nuanced than that that what the public thinks is okay. They need to see talking heads on either Fox or MSNBC or whatever, reading the Wall Street Journal or Vox or what have you, trying to explain to them why, oh no, you, you might have initially thought this was wrong, but it's okay because... Da, da, da. So public opinion can be molded. You know, Noam Chomsky's thing about manufactured consent. But again, there is the consent, even if it is manufactured. Right? So that, that's the when thinking about how to reform this system. And if you don't like what the current regime is capable of and want to dial it back, that's why I'm saying I think the efforts that will really help in the long run are changing public opinion to get more and more people to realize, okay, this system doesn't work. Is there a more humane voluntary system that would be feasible if we could get to it? So that's where I'm putting my efforts. I'm not telling other people what to do. I'm just explaining why to me that kind of work is far more important than just campaigning for a candidate in the next election. This also has to do with uh, the work of Gene Sharp. At some point in the future, I'll go ahead and do an episode on his work. So his big book is From Dictatorship to Democracy, and he's the big guy in the field of nonviolent response to oppression. So he's not an anarcho-capitalist. He believes in democracy, the will of the people. And I don't know that much about him yet. I still have to do a lot more research on his views. I'm guessing I probably would disagree with a lot of his views, like on economic policy and whatnot. But in any event, his claim to fame, his niche that he's cornered, or did, because he's not alive anymore, was to say this is how people can respond to a, uh, an un unjust, illegitimate regime and the various nonviolent ways to do it. And so I think it's worth, worth uh, paying attention to. Last thing I'll mention on this, just to reinforce what I was saying, that if the public doesn't cooperate, it's hard for the rulers to stay in power, is uh, this the next time you're watching like a TV show or a movie, like about a serial killer or you know, something like that, typically what happens in those shows is that the authorities put a call out to the public. Like, if you have any tips, anything related to, you know, these, this uh, serial killer who's on the loose, please contact authorities. And so if they catch the person, usually, you know, yeah, there's the protagonists of the film are going to be the FBI agents or whatever, the people in the special crimes unit, stars of the show or what have you. But a lot of times it's not just they're geniuses and they come up with the thing and they see the pattern. It's that, oh, and we got a call 
uh, a woman noticed a, a dark Chevy at, at 3 a.m. doing such and such. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's tips from the public that give them the crucial little tidbits that then they put together with their forensic analysis and, you know, their psychological profiler, profilers and what have you in order to figure out who the killer is. So if the public just flat out doesn't cooperate with the authorities, there's not that much they can do. So to be clear, I'm not saying, so stop helping them catch serial killers. That's not my point. My point though is when the, just think of it like it's an occupying power. Or even if, you know, the Nazis, you know, the German war machine rolls into France and takes over during World War II, they have collaborators, right? What do they do is they start striking deals with French officials who are willing to put aside loyalty to their people in order to have power or they do it, you know, out of fear that their family's going to get hurt. And so, hey, if we collaborate, maybe I'll spare the, my loved ones. All right, so awful situation to be in, but point being, it's hard to just come in from scratch and take over. Even going back to my Superman 2 example, what do the three Kryptonians do? They go to the White House. They take over the U.S. government. And then in the scene where, uh, you know, Clark and Lois somehow leave the North Pole, even though they can't fly anymore, and end up at a diner and they're watching TV and the president is saying, you know, something like, I, in consultation with the other world leaders, formally transfer control over planet Earth to General Zod. Superman, where are you? You know, so notice there too. Well, how did it happen? How did General Zod take over Earth in a, in a week? It's because Earth already was conquered. It was already neatly divided into large jurisdictions. And so really all you needed to do was to get about a dozen centers of authority to sign off on the fact that, oh yeah, Zod is in charge of us. We take orders now from General Zod and effectively he had control of planet Earth. If Earth had been in Kapistan, where, you know, what would he do? Consisting of what? 60 million homeowners associations and, you know, a few skyscrapers in major cities that had sole ownership or, you know, a, a corporate board that he'd go and terrorize a couple hundred CEOs as well as, again, the 60 million homeowners. I mean, you, you see the point it would be a lot harder to conquer planet Earth if it had been ANCAP when they showed up. Because, again, that you would have started from scratch. Whereas right now, Earth has largely been conquered already. So, again, going the other way, if you have this illegitimate regime, it's not necessary for there to be a violent revolution. When you realize that the way a tyrant stays in power is because people follow his orders, well then one obvious way to stop that system is people need to stop following his orders. That would stop it right there. Now, I grant you the, the, you know, the, the tricky thing is you'd say, okay, but in practice, not everyone's going to stop on a dime. And so given that, you know, maybe some other strategies are more effective and limit bloodshed, blah, 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 I get all that. But still, it's worth pointing out the reason a tyrant is in power is because other people are following his orders. If they all just stopped, if they all resigned, just walked away. Or if they just said, okay, we'll follow orders that aren't morally repugnant, then still that would solve it too. So with those deep thoughts, I'll leave you. Thanks for listening, folks, and I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, 
and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.